So I don't know how it happened, but uh, there's a tradition in my family now that on Thanksgiving we all watch the movie Elf. <clears throat> and it's hilarious, right? I mean, when I will, Santa! I know him, right? We, we all love Will Ferrell. And that, that story, as, as, uh, as campy and cult classic-y as it is, is, is really a story about this one figure awakening in us and recapturing for us all the wonder that we're all missing or that we've buried down in our such importance and significance in our world. And it's this one figure that's out to awaken us to what we have missed, to what we think maybe didn't exist and yet does in spades. And the thing about that film is, um, you know, John Favreau wasn't trying to make it a, a holy film. Um, he would say that the, the greatest argument of that story is all about recapturing the Christmas spirit, whatever that is. In fact, I would argue, though, that Christmas is not about catching the Christmas spirit. It's about noticing what is the Christmas comfort. Amid the miracle and the spectacle of all that we've been observing in this month and will on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, there's one thing that perhaps gets lost in the shuffle that we dare not miss, and that is the comfort, the announcement of comfort. Now, comfort is in a particular way, not comfortable, not comfy, comfort. This culture does all it can to make you comfortable. Uh, you know, a blanket, a bowl of popcorn, and a remote control. Comfortable. But that's not comfort. In fact, I won't ask for a show of hands how much of you have spent a lot of money over this last several weeks and, and ask yourself how much of that will really provide for you a, that you know, kind of deep comfort for whatever inner unrest you might be struggling with. Culture does a great job of making you comfortable, but it actually, I would say, art is a, is a conspiracy against you not to attend what is your deepest need of comfort. Christmas is not about Christmas spirit. It's not about a spectacle. It is about a miracle, but it's about a miracle of bringing comfort. And as we've been listening to Isaiah, the text that we're going to look at today in a very different setting from the 800 years since the point at which Jesus comes, he is out to offer a word of comfort. And though Isaiah and Jesus are separated by centuries and circumstances, it is essentially the same message of comfort. And though Isaiah and Jesus are in some ways vastly at a remove from where you and I are in 2019, I would argue that this text and the message of Christmas is all about to speak to us that very message of comfort that we're desperate for, that we're perhaps even afraid to admit. You and I are looking for comfort in a big way, and if Christmas is anything, it is a message of comfort. And therefore, if it's that kind of comfort, whatever it means, to really celebrate what we're doing, means you kind of got to grapple with what our condition really is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. This is what Advent is. This is what Christmas is. It's not about a spirit. It's not about stuff. It's about a comfort. And the question we have to ask ourselves, what is this comfort? Because lest we confuse the mess of comfort with popcorn, a blanket, and a remote control, we've got to understand what that comfort is. So we're going to listen to Isaiah, who's going to hint to us about the message of Jesus. 
And we're going to consider comfort in three ways. The source of the comfort, the substance of that comfort, and the experience of it. The source, the substance, the experience. We're in chapter 40 of Isaiah, if you're able to stand. I wonder if you would. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. And then skipping down to verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the encouraging word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. If you were listening real carefully there, then the most prominent part of all of Isaiah 40, and in case if we had read the entirety of Isaiah 40, the most prominent part that Isaiah seeks to get out at this moment is a profile of who God is. A little dossier on the being, character, and activity of the Lord. And so he, therefore, represents the source of our comfort. And what we want to do here in this first part is to is to kind of outline for us how is God a source of comfort and then why, 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 why does it even matter for us to understand that profile of God? Because we learn a few things about him in really short order that are meant to help us take stock not only of his being, but of why he is the most unique source of comfort we might look to. The first thing we learn about him is that this God is one who draws near. And you heard it there in verses 3 through 5. 
A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is, this is almost like the language of an advanced team for a dignitary. You know? They, they, they leave no detail out of their consideration. They are attentive to everything. They know where he or she is going. They have made the flight path sure, the, the ground transportation path sure, the, the walking from whatever car they were in to the dais that they're headed to. Every single detail is attended to. Nothing is in the way. There is nothing hindering them. These words are out to tell us that this God is the one who comes near to us. If you were here a few weeks ago and we were listening to Isaiah 57, that was a moment in which he was telling us, you, you make a path. Make a path. Get, out of, get everything out of the way so that you can go find your God. This one, here's the passage in which God is saying to us, I'm coming for you. I'm entering into your condition. I'm coming to reveal myself to you. And though I am invisible, though I'm unseen, I do not bring my comfort from a distance. I bring it in a proximate way. I'm close. I'm near. I'm for, and it is full of beauty, and it is full of glory. And that's the first thing we learn about him. That this God, the source of our comfort, is one who draws near. It is why, even in the darkness of our rooms this morning, we can still pray to him and believe that he hears, because he's that near. The second thing we learn about him as a source is that he has a unique ability to bring comfort. And that you hear, what you hear there in verses 6 through 8. The voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Oh, its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand together. You may remember that moment in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus has everybody who's listening to him to direct their imagination to the flowers of the field. That they are full of splendor. And it's of no effort of their own. That's just what flowers are. That's just what flowers do. It's because that's how God has made those flowers. And God, in that moment, Jesus is out to tell us, will you just consider their splendor for a moment and how they don't work for it and how God obviously arrays them with great splendor. And therefore, if God does that for the flowers and he loves humanity even more, then don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. In that moment, Jesus is out to tell us the flowers are out to point us to the kindness of God. And here in Isaiah, though, the flowers are out to speak not so much to the nature of God so much as to the frail beauty of humanity. There is something wondrous about us and yet wondrous yet ephemeral. And therefore, in great stark contrast to who the nature of God is, he's the one who endures. He's the one who persists. Because he is before all things, he needs nothing and is behind everything. He is the one uniquely suited to bring us comfort because he is bound by nothing. When it rains here, when it floods here, when a hurricane comes here, this city is gripped and people are reeling in the turmoil of all of that. But if you look at Pisgah Mountain, Pisgah Mountain, in the, force, in the face of all of that, is kind of like this. It's unaffected. It's undiminished. That's a, it's a fraction of what Isaiah is out to help us 
grapple with the nature of who our God is. He is a unique source of comfort because he is unmoved as you and I are moved. He is undiminished as you and I are diminished. He is a stalwart presence in the midst of a great storm. And he is undaunted by it. And that's what makes him a unique source of comfort. The third voice to tell us about how God is the source of our comfort is to speak to the question of, how does God apply this comfort? And you hear that in verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That that might sound familiar from a few weeks ago. Because when we're talking about the way in which God applies his comfort, there is both strength like a warrior and tenderness like a shepherd. He is strong enough to secure the comfort that we need and yet tender enough to apply it with care. He is sovereign, but he is a shepherd. And he is the one who applies it with both strength and nuance and tenderness. We who are earthly fathers, all of us who have had earthly fathers, how easily those earthly fathers forget how influential we can be for our children as they begin to conceive of who their Heavenly Father is. How profound an impact we might have on how they begin to conceive of who God is simply by the way we are to them. And therefore, we may be strong in many ways, but maybe brash and brusque. Or we may be tender in many other ways, but maybe timid and too accommodating. What Isaiah is out to tell us about who this God is, the source of our comfort, is he is both strong and tender. Those are mixed together in a perfect synthesis. And he is the one to remind us that in that is our comfort. We get comfort from all sorts of places. But this is why Isaiah has spent so much time in chapter 40 to provide for us an outline of who God is. Because here's the deal. Why does it matter that God is a source of comfort, is the one who draws near, who doesn't fade, and who applies it with strength and tenderness. Why do we need to know that about him? Why do we need to know that is the way in which he brings comfort? Because no one and nothing else does in our world. You and I get comfort from all sorts of places. We get it from our relationships. We get it from affirmation. We get it from satisfaction and job well done. And all of those things are great and they're good and to be thanked for. They're full of gratefulness and yet they end. They, like we, are weary. Everything goes. Everything lives. Everything fades. Everything dies. And so those sources of comfort for us They can be like food to us, but they can't be our foundation. And if we make them as such, we set ourselves up for even something less than comfort. There's a a film that came out several years ago called Magnolia that I I might encourage you to do a little research on before you see. It's a hard film in many ways. It it tracks the lives of ten different characters who who you think are just ten different storylines, and yet they end up having relationship and overlap, and and they converge in many ways towards the end of the film. And yet every single one of those storylines reveals a human heart 
that is out to find something deep and profound and helpful. And every way they look and every path they take, it leads them to a dead end. The affirmations they once had have dwindled. The affirmations they're now getting is still eating them up from within. The attempts to medicate their souls, the attempts to find recognition and blessing and love, all of those things they reasonably and genuinely seek, and yet not one of them can find their strength in it, not lastingly. The reason I think Isaiah is out to tell us a profile of this God who is the source of our comfort, is that there is nothing else that fills the bill. And here's the second reason, though. Because all those forms of affirmation, all those forms of comfort, they don't quite get to what is that deepest source of inner unrest in us. What you and I most need is not simply affirmation. There's something else. And here's what gets us to the second part of what Isaiah's out to tell us. Not merely that God is the source of our comfort, but he's out to tell us the substance of that comfort. As we said week in and week out, when you read Isaiah, you, you can't read it like it exists in a vacuum. It speaks into a historical context. And by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 40, the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah, has just been or is about to be repatriated to its land from exile after 70 years in Babylon, in a foreign country. They have been in exile. And you and I, unless we have come from another country or ever experienced what it means to be a refugee, we don't have any concept of what it means to be in exile. We don't know what it's like to have our capital city burned. We don't know what it's like to have tens of thousands of our fellow citizens um, taken away to another country. We don't know what it is to be violated or occupied. The closest thing that you and I might experience is if, we, God forbid, our house is burned down and, and we try to pick up the pieces and try to make home out of something that is not our home. Gosh, when you go home this afternoon, just, just imagine for a moment how your sense of place roots you and how, how your very psyche and sense of internal orientation would just be messed up for a while if you get uprooted from where you are. Israel knew that experience. They knew what it was like to be violated and displaced and left as if they were second-class citizens. They knew that. And therefore, the word of comfort that comes from Isaiah, which you heard in verse 1, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What you hear first of all in the word of comfort is to believe that God does have an interest in your circumstances. And that there are moments in which there is a kind of relief found when those circumstances change. But if you noticed carefully, the word of comfort to Jerusalem returning to her land is not primarily about a change of circumstances. It's not about being freed from exile. The word of comfort to Israel is about being freed from the regret that led them into exile in the first place. This word of comfort is more that you're going home. It's, it's more than that. This word of comfort is out to respond to the regret of what provoked God's righteous anger, these habitual inclinations of the heart that affected both individuals and its whole community. That word of comfort comes to them. And that word of comfort is to say you're forgiven. 
that what made us sideways with one another has now been resolved. See, there's the consistent theme in the whole book of Isaiah that the reason Israel goes into exile is not simply the consequence of a random set of geopolitical events that ends up taking taking 20,000 people out of Jerusalem and moving them to Babylon. Nor is the consistent theme of Isaiah the idea that God is just sort of going to take out his frustration on Israel and he's sort of the sadistic little deity that is glad to put Israel in its place. That's not the consistent theme of Isaiah. The consistent theme of Isaiah is that Israel went into exile as a matter of discipline. Like a loving father might do for their child who is habitually rebellious. It's in love. But it's an attempt to rehabilitate. It's an attempt to resolve. And therefore, the the word of comfort that Isaiah speaks, that God speaks through Isaiah to Israel, is that your the tragedy, the tragedy that led to your exile, we're done with that. It's forgiven. Your sin is pardoned. The Lord Jesus, both at his birth and near his death, there was, you hear, a great longing in the people who were around him that the, the word of comfort that he might bring would be through a political liberation. Finally, you're here, and you're going to kick these Romans out. And Jesus did not dispute that longing or even dispute that future. But Jesus' consistent message to that expectation was this. Your greater need Your greatest need has nothing to do with a political liberation. Your greatest need has to do with the liberation and a change of your heart. That he has come to do something in us first before he's ever wanted to do something around us. Because even if he changed who was in charge, even if he impeached everybody in the world that was in wrong, what matters most is what exists in your heart. For you and I know that the one thing that most plagues us is the thing that we're most haunted and hounded by. I read a guy named James Thurber over the last couple of days who said, uh, before you die, everybody should learn what they're running from and to and why. The message of comfort that Isaiah has come to give to Israel is that what led to your tragedy has been forgiven. The message of comfort that Jesus has come to give unto the world at Christmas is that there is a miracle. And that miracle is mercy. And it had nothing to do with you. And everything to do with him. In that is our comfort. In that is our relief. And though some circumstances might provide that relief, the one thing that you and I most need is to be told that whatever leads to our regret is something that he's taken responsibility and care for. Which gets us to the last part, because now we're talking about what is the experience of this comfort. The word of forgiveness is one thing, but what, in what way does it manifest itself? In the last several verses of the passage, you hear this saddened cry from Israel. You hear it there in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. In the midst of their exile, 
In the midst of their sense of estrangement before God, there's a part of Israel that's saying, have you washed your hands of us? Are you done with us? You and I, whenever we are undergoing suffering of whatever sort, whatever it might be, there is a way, there is a temptation in us for us to think that God is either done with us, washed his hands of us, or has left the building. And God has a response to those who think that in their weariness, in their desire to know that God is for them, he says this, and it's a ton, and it's worthy of its own sermon, but just listen to them. Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a whole sermon. But there's probably two things that those three verses are saying. God doesn't weary. And in our weariness, God comes to renew strength for living. God never wearies. But in our weariness, he comes to renew strength for a living. Exile had wearied Israel. If you've ever spent time and extended time in a cross-cultural setting, then you know what it's like, the psychological burden of being in a place that feels not like home, and it's wearisome. But that wasn't Israel's greatest weariness, not the greatest source of its weariness. The greatest source of Israel's weariness was what led them into exile at all. That what depleted them I would argue, is what most depletes us. What most steals from us. And you know what most steals from you and most steals from me? This. The attempt to be our own God or to be our own Savior. The attempt to make a name for ourselves or to rescue our name from the ash heap of our story. Some of you know the name Andrew Luck. He was, until recently, the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. He was a standout quarterback at Stanford. He was a standout quarterback at my high school. <sighs> he owes it all to me. No. <clears throat> but if you know his story, you know that about five months ago, he retired at the age of 30. He had suffered so many injuries that he was done. He had to go. Something else had to give. And you've probably heard his name. There is a name that I only recently heard that you may know if you're really a sports fanatic, and that is the name Nate Jackson. He, too, played NFL for five years. He, too, suffered dozens of injuries, even in five years in playing in the NFL. And he, too, at the age of 30, retired from football. Nobody does that. And shortly after Andrew Luck retired, Nate Jackson wrote an essay explaining why he thought Andrew might have, because he knows what it's like to live in Andrew Luck's head. And in this very candid essay, Nate Jackson explained not only what drove him to play, but what drove him to suffer in such a way that it was almost death by a thousand injuries. 
And in that essay, he wrote this. By the time I saw John Taylor catch the winning touchdown from Joe Montana in Super Bowl 23, I was a full-fledged capital B believer. Whatever I could do to get there, I would, and I did. And once I put on my pads, like all football players, I became a prisoner of my success. No matter how rough things got, I always worked my way back, never wanting an injury to define me, never wanting weakness to be my final act. That's what Grandpa expected. That's what Dad expects. And what all of your coaches and friends and neighbors expect, that kid who told you you'd never make it, that coach who cut you in college, you'll show them all. You'll have the last laugh. And so you play until they drag your lifeless body from the grass, and it's all you can do to muster a thumbs up as they will you into the tunnel, knowing that's how you secure your legacy. I became the prisoner of my success. I would show them all. I'll have the last laugh. Securing your legacy. Friends, that's not sports language. That's religious language. That is an attempt to be okay with the world. That is an attempt to be enough. That is a law that Nate Jackson and Andrew Luck and others like them, they create a law for themselves, and if they abide by it, they're okay, and if they fail at it, they're nothing. And what is true for NFL football players is true for all of us. You and I are tempted to become our own God or to become our own Savior. There is a weariness that's good. You do a good job, you work hard at the end of the day, that's a satisfying kind of weariness. And you'll be replenished in some ways. But this kind of effort that leads to this kind of weariness, this is theft right beneath your nose. What wearied most Israel was the attempt to become its own God and to become its own Savior. And it allowed itself to be pillaged and pilfered. And the word of comfort that comes from Isaiah, from God through Isaiah to Israel is, you don't have to be your own God. You will fail at it. And you surely can't be your own Savior, so stop trying. That message of comfort from God to Israel in the 8th century B.C. is the same message that Jesus brings to all of us. Look, here's the deal. At his birth, Jesus is rather quiet, probably, other than crying like an infant. But then he grows up and he starts talking. And when he starts talking, he's out to remind us that there is something that only he can do. And that he has come to do for us what only he can do. That he is the one who entered into our condition, who did not fade in the midst of great reprisal, the one who satisfied the requirements of iniquity in himself, and the one who comes and loves us. Some guy named John T. Langley said this, Jesus loves us now, not tomorrow when we're better. We're a family of saved sinners, not just in theory, but in reality. That is his message of comfort to us. That is the gospel unto us. You can't be your own God. And you'll never rescue yourself from everything that leads to your regret. But he can. And so he does. Near the end of Magnolia, all of these ten characters who have lived this hapless, awful life in which they've discovered that nothing really has worked for them, 
it almost doesn't work in the film, but the director ends up having all ten characters in different places in the city that they all reside in start singing the same song. And it's a song by Amy Mann. And it's a song entitled Wise Up. And there's a line and a chorus in that song that goes like this. You're sure there's a cure and you finally found it. You think one drink will shrink you till you're underground and living down, but it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until you wise up. And the last two lines of the song go like this. It's not going to stop, so just give up. The word of comfort that the Lord Jesus comes to us both in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection is for you and me to give up trying to be our own Lord and Savior. Give up. That's how you wait upon the Lord in hope. That's how you find your goodness in him. It is hard to follow him, and he knows it. But to be found in him, to have his favor, that's all on him. And in knowing that we have his favor, and by the power of the Spirit that he gives us through faith in him, then we discover what it is to walk, to stumble, to stand again, to be weary, but to find our strength. That's how we wait upon him. We give up trying to become a substitute for him. And one other thing. How do you wait upon the Lord? To have your strength renewed? Madeline Engle, the author of A Wrinkle in Time, shared an Advent poem many years ago that ends like this. Jesus came to a world which did not mesh to heal its tangles, shield its scorn, In the mystery of the word made flesh, the maker of the stars was born. We cannot wait till the world is sane to raise our songs with joyful voice. For to share our grief, to touch our pain, it came with love. Rejoice. Rejoice. Everybody's waiting. Not all waiting is the same. What does it mean to wait upon Jesus for the removal of your strength? Give up trying to become a substitute for him. But don't wait for him to come back before you start giving thanks now. Before you start raising your songs with a joyful voice. Before you let all the reasons you have for grief to be brought into the light of his truth and of his love. And maybe by his spirit, in that, you will find comfort. That's the message of comfort. That's Christmas. Pray with me by singing with me what I've sung before, a very ancient hymn. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega. He the source, the ending, He of the things that are, that have been, and that future you shall see, evermore and evermore.